Uh, it's great to be with you here again and to see so many of you I know and I hope to get to know the ones I don't know. And the good news is that if your tie gets massacred, it does make quite a useful bookmark. <laughs> and I'm sorry, Ken, because I think that means you're the only one wearing a tie now, but hey, <laughs> I guess you do that whatever the weather. So, as I was just praying about what to bring to you today, there were several things that God put on my heart. By the way, I was asked if I'd like to bring a few books for a resources table. That will be outside afterwards. Just to say very quickly, um, there's a, a couple of my books on there. One is called Understanding God. I was challenged a little while ago uh, by the fact that, um, obviously, one of the things I do as the Free Church's moderator is I have responsibility for all the free church chaplaincy in the prisons uh, in this country. And uh, at the moment, one of our big challenges in the prisons is just how strong Muslim evangelism is, particularly towards young black guys. And that's something we've been trying to address. And they asked me if I could write a simple book explaining exactly what the Christian position is about God. And I didn't do very well because I can't write very simply. Um, but I produced a first draft, which uh, I must admit, um, um, Christian students in northern Nigeria have been pushing me to write. So it's a bit more of a student one, but there will be a, a downgrade version to use in the prisons. So Understanding God is a book that's there. Another one called The Power of Purity. Um, one of the challenges when you're looking at holiness is that you find groups that go right over to an extreme where it becomes legalistic. And then everyone reacts and throws everything out like the baby with the bathwater. And so I, I wrote something which I trust will be helpful called The Power of Purity. So those two books are there. They're five pounds each. If you want them for free, you can do that. You just need to sign up to support me every month, which is, you know, obviously a catch. But if you can't see through that one, you haven't been in church very long. Um, but yeah, it would be great to have some of you praying for what I do on a regular basis. And even if you were able just to commit, say, three, four, five pounds a month, um, that would be a real blessing to us, and you have the books for free on that basis. There's also a book there by my wife. Um, she's writing another one at the moment, but this one she wrote some years back. Um, someone who was very prominent in the Christian world, Kathy Kay. If you ever went to some of the big conferences in the 70s and 80s, Kathy was always wheeled out as the person who was going to speak about the joy of singleness. Um, the only problem was she didn't see singleness as a joy. And she'd got all kinds of inward struggles, which everyone was telling her to bottle down, keep quiet. But in the end, you can't do that. And so Kathy had a very traumatic life. And Marion, when she decided she was going to write Kathy's life, was told by quite a few senior church leaders, that one doesn't need to come out into public. You don't need to say that to my wife. That would be the ultimate provocation. So the book has been written. And uh, if you're interested, there's a copy. And it's a little bit more than five pounds, but today, Feel free to have that for five pounds. There's a few other things out there. Most of the resources on my website now are all there for free. So everything I've ever done on television, radio, you can get most of that just to download for free these days. There's cards about that. Um, also, we've just set up a project called Youth Videos. I started talking to a lot of youth leaders around the country, and they said they've got two problems. Number one, the youth in their churches were finding videos that weren't suitable. And when they, as youth leaders, tried to find videos that were suitable, they spent all day searching online to try and find something and ended up disappointed. So I've had my media team work on this and really you know, spend a lot of time just trawling the net to find out what's good out there from the States and from over here and to categorize it so that it's all available 
And so if you, you want to encourage uh, your teenagers to look in the right direction, YouthVids is a good place to go. And if you're a youth leader, it's a helpful resource as well. So those things are there, and uh, I'll try and be around that table afterwards. We should be able to take card payments, but I'm not very clever at that. So um, anyone who could help with that kind of thing. I try and do iZettle, but it uses my phone, and I'm not that clever. So, but cash is great. But anyway, that's all by the way, because what I wanted to talk to you about today is something about the kingdom of God. And, you know, when I was a church leader, one of the most important relationships for me as the church leader was with the worship leader, because I used to find that if we could get going in the same direction, it would be amazing. And I haven't had any words with your worship leader, but boy, did we get going in the same direction today. So I'm really grateful for that. And the songs that we've sung really were, were just going in the direction where my heart was going as I was preparing. Just the strength of what God does and the extraordinary way in which he does it. About the lamb, the one that we celebrate, who everyone expected to see as the lion of Judah and then suddenly the lamb that had just been slain. And so when I was looking at the kingdom of God, which is what I want to talk about today, I found myself drawn to certain aspects of the kingdom. But let's start in that well-known passage in John 18 where... Jesus is before Pilate. And Pilate says to him in verse 35, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. I have absolutely no idea what Pilate made of that. But it was so totally contrary to every concept of kingdom that he had in his head. He was a vassal of the Roman Empire. Rome had conquered. Rome boasted on its strength. When it had its victory parades, they would actually lead the slaves in front, the ones that had been conquered. They would be part of that victory parade. And the whole thing was about subduing, subjecting. And here is Jesus saying, my kingdom's not of this world. <laughs> he was saying, my kingdom is so totally different, it's almost impossible for you to get your head around it. And we have a challenge today, because we are people that are representing that kingdom. And it is a challenge, because really, the world today is no different in many ways from the Roman kingdom of the past. Might look a little bit politer, do things in a slightly different way. People have different titles. But there's still this big scramble to get to the top, no matter who you tread on to get there. And there's still a celebration of strength in a way that makes us at times wonder just what God is doing with his church. One of the things that really puzzles me at the moment, spend a lot of time having to deal with this, is that there seems to be a, a growing group of people around the world who thinks that the church can only survive in a totally Christianized society. So there's all this kind of anxiety, you know, if, if we don't have this law in place and that law in place and something else in place, the church will not be able to survive. We've got that wrong. 
If you look at the situations in which the church was birthed, it was not birthed into a Christianized society. Society changed because of the testimony of the church. And I know that there's a sense today in which we need to rediscover the confidence that can say no matter what, there's something that God has given us that will transcend and transform and actually be in the end the conquering force that God has in mind, but not in the way that the world expects it. So we have a kingdom. We're part of this kingdom. I even find it strange that in some of the churches I go to, there's this whole concept of how do you enter into the kingdom and a misunderstanding of a Bible verse which says we've got to enter it by force. I've never come across a Bible verse so misunderstood as that one when Jesus said, fear not, little flock, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Why are people fighting for what God's trying to give them? <laughs> Where do these struggles come from in people's understanding? So we're going to do a little bit of unpacking around this theme of kingdom. And there's an Old Testament passage which comes up twice, actually, which is unusual in the Old Testament. You find it in Micah 4, but you also find it in Isaiah 2. And it says this. I'm going to read from Micah, because I want to get to a verse that Isaiah doesn't cover. It says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it, Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the Lord shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then verse 3 of chapter 4 in Micah, He shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. For all people walk, each in the name of his God, but we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast and those whom I've afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. Now, if you think I'm going to talk on that basis about some millennial kingdom that's to come, you don't know me and you don't know my theology. I'm not going there. Because what I do believe above everything else is that there is a Jerusalem that is above and when it says we're born again, we're born from that Jerusalem and we're not actually transfixed by the earthly one. That'll do for the moment. I know that when David went after that site in Jerusalem all those years ago, and that's amazing, you know? Shepherd boy, we heard the story, John read it before the dedications this morning. Shepherd boy, who was anointed king and then had to wait a long time before he was able to reign. He gained experience during that time because he went and was an armor bearer to Saul. He was uh, the musician in the court, although at times Saul didn't really seem to recognize him. 
But there was one thing that seems to have been on his mind over and over again. And that was, as a shepherd boy looking after the sheep around the Bethlehem area, he knew that there was a city that was a challenge. The city of Jebusi. It was the one place that the children of Israel had not been able to take when they took the land. The Jebusites held on to it against everything. They said, this city of ours is such a stronghold that no one will get it. But David looked at that city. And in his heart, even before he is king, I was believing that he was saying, one day, that will be my capital city. <laughs> you're allowed to dream, you know. Particularly when you've already been told which direction you're going. Some of you can be sitting there dreaming about being astronauts and all of those kind of things, but it helps if you've had a word from the Lord, and it definitely helps if you've been anointed. So David had already been anointed king, so you can forgive him about dreaming over his capital city. And he looked at that place and thought, and this is where we need to get to very often, that the strongholds of the enemy can become the strongholds for the kingdom. Because we need strongholds in the kingdom of God too. And he was looking at that place and saying, that stronghold could be my stronghold. He didn't have a defeatist mentality. He didn't say, look, no one's been able to take that place in centuries. He says, one day that will be Jerusalem. And one day, it will not just be Jerusalem, place of peace, instead of Jebusi, which means downtrodden, but it will be a place that I will make to be like the city of God. You know, we're told in Hebrews 11 that Abraham went out looking for a city. You know he never found it? He was looking for a city whose maker and builder was God. In a sense, he was looking for a heavenly city. He was on a heavenly quest. He spent most of his time camping under that tree, the terebinth tree in Mamre. But there was something in his heart that was looking for a city. And David got that, that it was actually a heavenly city that he had in mind. And he wanted to get an earthly representation of that heavenly reality. You know that after he slew Goliath, do you know the first thing he did? Most people miss this verse. It actually says he walked off the battlefield with Goliath's head. You think, why did he take Goliath's head? The, the giant was dead, you know, you can't be more dead just because you've taken the head off. But he took the head off with Goliath's sword, and I can imagine David as a young man running with the, this gruesome bit, this, with all the blood dripping out and everything else, holding the head. Back. But where did he go? It says he went to Jebusi, he went to Jerusalem. And I can imagine him sort of holding up the head, shouting at that city, and you will be the next. Because that was his mindset. I'm going to take that place and I'm going to transform it. But all the time in his mind, it wasn't just the earthly vision that he had. He was trying to take something of a heavenly vision and bring it as a representation on earth. And for me, as I look at passages like Micah 4, there's something in me which doesn't push it all off to the future, but says, let's see what we can capture of that heavenly vision and bring it into reality in our day. I think there's an echo in this when Jesus is actually talking on the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins to talk about his kingdom as being a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hidden. It echoes what was said here 
in Micah and Isaiah 2. That one day the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. I believe for these kind of things. I want to see a move. I know that it doesn't worry me that we're the remnant because I know that ultimately we get the victory. <laughs> and God is going to do something incredible. It doesn't matter to me that we've lost church numbers because in fact what we've lost is a lot of nominalism. And in places now where you're seeing amazing church growth, they need to remember they're only one generation away from nominalism. You know, you can have an exciting revival, people get born again, and the next generation, people just name the name of the Lord without knowing the power of the Spirit. On that time, when that happens, the church needs a shake-up. <laughs> and the church in this land has had a shake-up. We're beginning to turn a corner. In most urban areas in this country, we're now back in church growth. When I'm in certain parts of the world and they say to me, we're horrified at what's happening in Britain. Churches are becoming mosques. I normally say, if you saw some of those churches, you'd be grateful that someone had taken them off our hands. <laughs> but you try and find a school hall or a community hall in London on a Sunday that hasn't got a church in it. <laughs> and that's now true of most of the major cities in this country. We're still seeing rural decline, which affects some of the denominations hugely, like the Methodists that have got so many rural churches. And why is there rural decline? Because people in rural communities get in their cars and go to church in urban areas these days. There's very little support for the rural churches. And we've got to rethink how we reach into rural communities without necessarily thinking we've got to keep existing structures going. We can find new ways of doing things. But we need to be encouraged. God is doing something. We're not at that microphone moment yet. But there's something about the kingdom and people that are beginning to capture this sense of there's a vision of the kingdom that we have that's the ultimate in heaven, but let's see some expression of it right here and now. And let's see it come out of a confident church and not one that has to cower in the corner and say, oh dear, if society doesn't change, we won't survive. We will. Other religions... Some of them have been birthed on the understanding that they will only survive if the whole community changes to embrace their views. That's the way they were founded. I'm not going to give you the list. It's not a very long one, but you can probably guess. But the church wasn't founded like that. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, but my kingdom is among you. And we're going to see that kingdom established, and we are, by God's grace, seeing that kingdom established. So we know that the kingdom doesn't fight in the way that the Roman Empire fought, and that confused Pilate. But what are the characteristics of this kingdom that are so important? I'd say the first thing I'd want to draw out from the Micah passage, it is a kingdom of principled peace. Not peace at any price. I remember taking a seminar with students from northern Nigerian universities, mixture of Muslims, Christians, and they were challenging me on the fact, well, the Muslim students were, on the fact that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and yet he went through 
the temple with a, a whip. I said, he's not the prince of peace at any price. In fact, the price that Jesus paid for peace is so enormous that that's why we miss out so often. Because it took him being nailed to the cross to bring the kind of reconciliation. Peace is not at any price. We're not here to gloss over the things that need to be challenged. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of the Lord's throne. Justice is important. We need to hold to these things. One of the things that excites me is that you can go to any bunch of young people today and you'll find that they're passionate about justice. You know, it's amazing. You know, if you're a youth leader, you're trying to think, what can I, what can I stir them up about? You can normally stir them up on justice. There's something that they think that's so important there. And that's on God's heart, too. There's a connectivity at that point that we need to appreciate. God is a God of justice. It's not peace at any price. But there will come a point, by God's grace, when we will be able to beat our swords into plowshares and we'll be able to beat our pruning hooks into uh, spears into pruning hooks. It's interesting imagery, that. Because here in Micah and same in Isaiah, the direction is your sword becomes a plowshare and your spear becomes a pruning hook. But if you go to the prophet Joel, he's actually saying to them, it's time to turn your plowshares into swords. <laughs> and it's time to turn your pruning hooks into spears. This is what you get when you have an agricultural community. See, basically, the nation of Israel was a nation of fighting farmers. <laughs> it wasn't basically a warlike nation. In fact, one of the embarrassments was that when they needed their swords sharpened, and they didn't have many of them, they had to go and ask the Philistines to do them a favor, which is a little bit strange, isn't it? <laughs> but they were a, a nation that was set on an agricultural lifestyle. You know, they had three harvest festivals a year. <laughs> they had the Passover festival, which really was a celebration. The barley harvest is in, and the wheat harvest is to come. They were told to celebrate it with unleavened bread. Then they had, as you know, 50 days later, they had the Pentecost feast, which was the celebration of the wheat harvest having come in. And whereas they waved the barley before the Lord at Passover, they waved the wheat before the Lord at Pentecost. One of the things that surprises people, actually they were told at Pentecost that they were to eat bread that had been leavened. Now, some people get really confused about that. They say, hold on a minute, I thought the whole idea of unleavened bread was that leaven was a picture of sin and that therefore we had to take the leaven out of the bread because at Passover, Jesus takes away the sin of the world. Well done, good theology. But leaven is not always a picture of sin. When Jesus takes that parable in Matthew 13 and talks about putting the leaven into the whole barrel so that it leavens the whole lump. That's not a picture of sin going through the world. That's a picture of the power of the Holy Spirit going through the world. And so when they were told, they had no idea why they had this strange habit. We take the leaven out at 
Passover, we put the leaven in at Pentecost. It's only when we discover that Jesus takes away the sin of the world at Passover and the Holy Spirit comes and energizes everything at Pentecost that we begin to see the significance of some of these things. But their big harvest feast was at the end of their year, the Tabernacles Feast. And the Tabernacles Feast was when they would bring the product not from the field, but from the threshing floor. Not from the vine, but from the wine press. And you need to remember, and I need to remember, that God's harvest in our lives doesn't just come from the field, it actually comes from the processing as well. We're all being processed. You might not like the fact that you're being processed, but you are being processed. Some of those painful things that you go through are to crush some of the grapes. <laughs> some of the threshings that you go through are to make sure that the chaff gets taken away from the wheat. Because in the end, that's what God is looking for. And we need to have that expectation as well. That as we work in the community, we're looking for harvest. We are farmers. <laughs> But there are times when we have to fight for the harvest. And one of the big disappointments for me is that spiritual warfare seems to have gone out of the church. I was sitting listening to a Bible college lecturer from the States who told us that Colossians was a much more superior letter to the other letters that Paul had written because he no longer was concerned about spiritual warfare. I said, that was a very strange exposition. I just hope he's changed his theory since then. Because, you know, if we're going to be serious about getting a harvest, there are times we're going to have to fight for that harvest. You may have to say, yeah, my plowshare can become a sword. And that's fine, because the word of God is both a plowshare and a sword, isn't it? The word of God can break up hard ground in the community, and Dagenham's not always the easiest. But the word of God can break up hard ground. But also the word of God is the sword of the spirit that can cut into situations. We need to know how to beat the plowshares into swords. We need to know how to beat the spears into pruning hooks because we're going to have to fight for the harvest. We can't just be indifferent about it. It's going to take spiritual warfare. For years I would preach on the, the parable of the, the wedding feast. You know that great story where the, eventually they brought them in from the highways and the byways after everyone had turned their invitations down and the place was full. I used to preach that and miss out a verse. And actually, before they went out to the highways and the byways and saw the place packed out, it says the king sent forth his armies to pull down the strongholds. And I wonder sometimes why we don't do more of that. <laughs> because that's what David had in his mind when he look at, looked at Jebusi. I will pull down the enemy's stronghold and build a stronghold for God in that place. So it's not peace at any price. It's not glossing things over. It's not saying, come on you Midianites, trample all over our harvest. Because that's what they did in Gideon's day. And I know Gideon was shocked when the angel of the Lord turned up and called him a mighty man of valor. But he was a mighty man of valor because he was the only man in Israel who was saying in his heart, the Midianites will not get all of this harvest. It wasn't much. He would take a handful of grain into the wine press and thresh it. But it was a statement of determination in his heart. 
and God saw it. And he said, you're the man to deliver the nation. And you feel like saying, but God, I wasn't doing much. <laughs> it was just taking a handful of grain and saying, the Midianites are not going to get it. But God says it's that kind of mindset that can bring transformation. I'll come back to that in a moment. But I want you to see that we're looking at a principled peace, not just peace at any price. There are standards. There are things that God wants us to do. There's a kingdom, yes, that is basically a harvest field where we're working for the Lord. But there will be times when we have to stand for that harvest. Jesus was right. My kingdom is not of this world. Else would my servants, in a sense, the context is, be fighting right now in order to take me away from this situation. Somehow, by God's grace, the disciples stood back <laughs> and let the work of God take place, even though Peter had been hacking around with his sword earlier in the evening. It was not God's way. So a principled peace is what God wants to bring. And we've talked about the cross today. There's no better illustration of how God brings peace than that cross where righteousness and truth kissed each other, as it says in Psalm 85, verse 10. We need to keep the end in view, that there is a peace that God wants to bring. Second thing I want to say is this. This kingdom that we need to be preaching and teaching is a kingdom of personal supply. See, I can't do all peace. I can do principled peace, but I couldn't do a personal something else so you've got personal supply Micah 4.4 4. this isn't in the Isaiah passage but it says everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree one of the things I've appreciated over the years about Lifeline Church, John and the team is there is such a commitment here to making sure that everybody catches the vision, everybody gets the benefit. Some churches I go to, it's so hierarchical. There was one place, you know, where I preached a message, uh, it's a little bit of a tendency of mine, and they said to me afterwards, you know, you preached here as if everyone was a leader. So I was tempted to say, I do that everywhere, actually. And they said, but that's not good. Because if everyone becomes a leader, what does that do for us? Haven't you got messages that you can just preach to people so that we are looked upon as, you know, repositories of super information that they can only access through us? I thought, no. <laughs> the Bible says everyone sits under their own vine and under their fig tree. That's where we've got to get to where it's not a case of coming to the man of God because the man of God has got some superior anointing. I remember once being asked to preach for a particular Nigerian friend of mine who was drawing huge crowds in London by saying that uh, he'd got a special anointing for certain things. He asked me if I'd like to preach, so I turned up and preached that everyone had got the same anointing as him. That didn't go down too well with him, but I thought it was a very important message to bring across. Because in the end, every one of us does have to sit under our own vine and under our own fig tree. And God is trying to work in our lives 
so that there's an access to spirituality that's there for every one of us. We come together to encourage one another. And we're all learners. Don't know how many times I've said this, but you know, when you read about the ministry gifts in Ephesians 4, it says they're for the equipping of the saints. Some of us that claim to be in that fivefold ministry need to remember that we haven't resigned from being people of God. We're still saints. And we need to be equipped. We might have something that's useful, but actually everyone else has got something that's useful to us too. So we're all here to learn from one another. There are certain structures that come into place to make church life easier and for things to function. But in the end, everyone can sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. When John wrote his first letter, he says, we have an anointing that teaches us. And he wasn't just talking about the leaders, saying it's there for everybody. And this is something about the kingdom that we've got to see. It is not a hierarchical kingdom. There is one Lord, one King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone else is just citizens of that kingdom. And there isn't superior and inferior. I love the fact that after Whitfield died, someone came up to Wesley, I don't love the question, but I love the answer, came up to Wesley and said to him, tell me, Mr. Wesley, do you think that you will see Mr. Whitfield in heaven? Because there had been a big dispute theologically between the two of them. And Wesley's answer was amazing. He said, I doubt if I'll see him in heaven. I believe he will be so much closer to the throne than I, I doubt if I'll even catch a glimpse of him. And that was just such a great answer because it wasn't about anything other than just how strong you want your relationship with Jesus to be. That's what it's about. And we've all got that same opportunity. You've got the same Bible. You've got the same Holy Spirit. God's establishing a personal supply line which will enable you to grow. And although it is a personal supply line, please don't think that you, can, you should be the only recipient of what you receive. <laughs> because God gives you an abundance so that there's that which you can share. But I do see that this personal supply is something that is a real kingdom principle. It's what God wants. We focus on the peace. We think, oh, that'd be great, won't it, when all the, the, the swords have been turned to plowshares and all the spears to pruning hooks. But do we see that that changing back to plowshares and pruning hooks is about each one of us getting the benefit of maximum fruitfulness? That you will sit under your own vine and under your own fig tree. You won't even have to share it as a family. I get excited about that. I still remember the moment when we were adopting our youngest son and the social services said to me, would you expect any child to be placed with you to share your faith? Knowing that I was a minister. So I said, no. And I was shocked. I said, no, I expect him to have his own. It's taken him a long time to get there, but hey, it's better that he's got his own than living on a second-hand one from me. And, you know, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up, he said, the promise is to you, it's to your children, and it's to those who are far off. And he's basically saying, this is a covenant that's renewable in every generation. God does not have grandchildren. Every generation needs to know being born afresh and being in relationship with God. 
And I believe for my kids, my grandkids, I've got grandkids who look down on me and go, you're right, granddad, and can I park the car in the car park? I never thought I'd have granddad. They were born far too prematurely, about 40 years prematurely. <laughs> but my prayer for them is that they don't live off what I've got, that they have their own vine and they have their own fig tree and they, they have that relationship with the Lord for themselves. And then the third thing I want to say, and I'll definitely come away from the alliterations with the P's here. It's a kingdom of unexpected advantage. This is where I come back to so much of the worship today. It's the lamb that's conquered. When everyone expected the kingdom to be established in some kind of militaristic power, it's the lamb who's conquered. Jesus was crucified in weakness and raised in the power of God. And it says in Micah 4, In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcast and those whom I've afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. Can you see what God does? I mean, he's advertised it plainly enough. It's written in billboards in the New Testament where he says... He chooses the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. I mean, is that big enough and plain enough? We don't tend to take it seriously. In our evangelism, we don't go for the have-nots. We go for the haves very often. We think if we can have what they have, then we'll actually be financially better off as a church. But sometimes we need to go for the have-nots. One of the biggest revivals that we saw in the 1800s was when William Booth decided that he would start preaching to the outcasts and the people that no one was interested in. He had a motto, go for souls and go for the worst. I was with the Salvation Army yesterday and the, the general said, we put it into practice and see what we got. <laughs> but it's true that God takes the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And he is prepared to assemble the lame and gather the outcasts. But I want to tell you more than that. I think this is such a kingdom principle that there are times when he makes the able lame. You think, oh my goodness, that sounds bad. But you know, you need to be prepared for some of these miracles. You know Paul's first miracle? Great miracle to start your ministry. He made a seeing man blind. That's a pretty good start, isn't it, for a, for a miracle ministry. But it was for a purpose. He was the only person who could have done it because he was the only other seeing man who'd been made blind on the Damascus Road. He knew what that transformation had worked in his life. He realized the darkness that he'd lived in and he needed to know the light that Christ was bringing him into. Elymas, the magician in that court, of Sergius Paulus on Cyprus, he needed to know the same. Just how dark the inner darkness is before you see the light of Christ. But then you think about Jacob wrestling with the Lord, saying to the angel, bless me, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the angel puts his thigh out of joint. From that day on, Jacob was a different man. Changed his name to Israel at that point. But he was a different man because he'd always walked boldly and uprightly, and then he walked with a limp. 
It completely changed his attitude. He, he, he even said to his brother, look, I, I won't rush on with you because I need to go at a slower pace because there are those in my company that are young and some are pregnant. It's talking about the flock, but it was true of the people. Changed. And sometimes God deals with us in our lives and we, we, we find that our sense of superiority somehow gets knocked. And we wonder, can we be of use to the Lord once we've lost that sense of confidence and superiority? And I always do well in life, you know? I've never failed an exam. Well, you know, maybe God might trip you up some a long way, just so that you learn a different lesson. Sometimes he does. Did it with Jacob. You'd have thought that coming face to face with Laban, if you were a twister, to meet the arch twister, <laughs> if you were a con man and you meet the arch con man, you'd think that you'd be conned out of conning. But actually it didn't work. It wasn't until he met the Lord at Peniel that that side of him was really dealt with. Sometimes we go through tough things and God says, look, I'm going to do something that you didn't expect. I'm going to use your lameness. There are two types of lameness. When you look at um, David taking Jabusi, you know how they came back, the taunt that they came back to him when he was declaring, I will take this stronghold of the enemy. They said, look, you know, even if we put the blind and the lame to defend the city, you could not take it. And then there's that verse in 2 Samuel, which people struggle with, it says, because it says, the lame and the blind are detested by David. And you think, oh, so much for disability rights, when you've got that stuck right there in the middle of the Old Testament. But he wasn't talking about the physically disabled. He was talking about the arrogant people in Jabusi who said, we put blind people on the walls, you couldn't get in. We put lame people to guard the city, you couldn't get in. Basically saying there's no one more blind and no one more lame than people that are that arrogant. Pride comes before a fall. I'm glad it does, because it's only once we've fallen that we get into a place. <laughs> where God can really use us. And that's a hard thing to say. But there is a passage that I particularly like in Isaiah 33. It's not what you'd expect to find in Isaiah. But in Isaiah 33, it says this, verse 23, second part of the verse. Then the prey of a great plunder is divided the lame take the prey. That's not what you'd expect, is it? It talks about, in the earlier part of the passage, how God is dealing with an arrogant Zion. Isn't it incredible that the city of God had become so arrogant that God's having to say, you're almost as bad as the Jebusites, but I'm going to bring you down a peg or six. And then you will discover in your lameness and your brokenness that you will take the prey. It's an amazing promise. But it's part of the pattern of the kingdom where we worship a crucified Christ. 
and find that he takes the things that are not. They had to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem with burnt bricks. That's the church. In a sense, we're a bunch of burnt bricks, living stones, that God is bringing together. And it's going to have an impact that you just cannot imagine. When the lame take the prey, that's a different story. That's Christ's kingdom being evidenced in the world. I'm probably one of the few people who really enjoy Lamentations. <laughs> and I'm going to finish with this verse in Lamentations. If you don't know where it is, it's just after Jeremiah. But these days it's easy. You can flick it up on your phone, can't you? It makes it so much easier. But in Lamentations 4, it says this. These are just a collection of poems. And this poem begins with these words. How the gold has become dim. How changed the fine gold. The stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, valuable as fine gold, how they are regarded as clay pots, the work of the hands of the potter. I've read that verse, those two verses, so many times. And I'm mindful of the fact that precious son of Zion I might be, but clay pot I also am. <laughs> and somehow we've got to come back to that understanding. Precious sons of Zion, yeah, praise God, you've been bought with a price. You're worth more than gold. You're worth more than rubies. You are incredible. I could be one of those preachers who say at this moment, turn to your neighbour and say to them, you look so beautiful, I've never seen anyone more beautiful than you. I've been in church services where we've been asked to say that. And I found myself saying it to some of my friends who I thought, am I really being hypocritical at this particular point? But, <laughs> but true though that is, that we are amazing, because God has redeemed us at such a price. The moment that you start seeing yourself in a way like that, that makes you so full of yourself, God will find ways that will say, let's make the gold look dim. Let's shake out the stones onto the corners of the street. Let's do something that will really have an impact. Because I don't think this world is going to be impressed by anything that looks like itself. The church is not meant to be holding up a mirror to the world saying, anything you can do, we can do 10 times better. It needs to see something different. Not you think the strong take the prey. We're telling you it's only the super strong that take the prey. It's actually being able to say to the world, you're going to find this hard to believe. But we who follow a crucified Christ actually believe it's the lame that take the prey. That we've got an advantage that the world hasn't got. Because we know a secret that the world doesn't know. This kingdom is a kingdom of principled peace. This kingdom is a kingdom of personal supply. But it's also a kingdom of unexpected an unparalleled advantage. I love this church. 
I come to you because I just love to see what God is doing in this place. And I share this just from my heart as a friend. Just believing that God is going to touch more lives through Lifeline and through your life in Lifeline as we just grasp these kingdom principles more and more. So perhaps half a tie is quite a good symbol for me today. <laughs> it is a bit like the lame taking the prey, isn't it, really? But maybe we can learn that when God cuts us down, it's the time when he can use us most.